Good morning again. Just where you're seated, let's pray. May God's word be spoken, may God's word be heard, and may God's word be lived. Amen. I recently read that we have about four to six dreams a night, uh, forgetting about 95% of them within five minutes of waking up. Apparently, most of us uh, dream in pastel colors. Who knew? 15% of us sleepwalk, and the most common dream is about falling over and over again, with the second most common being chased and forced to go back to school. In our uh, passage this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, there's an interesting little detail about a dream, a dream about Pontius Pilate. Uh, He was the governor of Judea under the Roman emperor Tiberius uh, in 26 to 36 AD. This, This is the dream, verse 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, Jesus, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. We aren't told what the bad dream was, But the English writer Dorothy Sayers uh, imagined what might have kept Pilate's better half tossing and turning that fateful night. She imagines Pilate's wife as a man ambitious for her husband, a minor bureaucrat, uh, to become famous, to make a name for himself, to become an influencer. In her dream, a vast multitude of people are chanting her husband's name in various different languages. Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate. She smiles as she turns over on her silky sheets because it seems that her husband has finally achieved the fame that she was hungry for. But then her dream turns dark and frightening. Gone are the pastel colors. Because she hears more clearly what the crowd is actually chanting. Not adulation, but accusation. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Her dream had come true, Sayers pointed out. He did become famous with millions of people all around the world, in different countries, in different languages, uh, young and old, rich and poor, down the centuries, speaking her husband's name. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. The most famous Roman in the world, Now, not only does Pilate root our Christian faith in a time and place in history, which in a North America where saying, I'm going to speak my truth is said without a trace of irony, uh, the remarkable claim of the Christian faith to be rooted not in myth or emotional projection, but actually in history has never been more important. But for our purposes today, I want us to look a bit more closely at Pontius Pilate because he famously said no to Jesus. Usually, uh, we like to focus on the people who said yes, the spiritual success stories, if you like. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, 
you'll know that that's exactly what we have been doing. Adventurous Joshua, sophisticated Nicodemus, uh, the bold uh, woman who was a social outcast. But today, as we draw nearer to close Holy Week, we read of a man who said no, who turned away. Rowan Williams, in his little book, Tokens of Trust, said that the historic summaries of the Christian faith, the Apostles and Nicene Creed, of course, they all named Jesus. Um, but then, and I quote, they named the one who says yes to Jesus, his mother Mary, and the one who says no to him, Pontius Pilate. All of us find ourselves somewhere between the yes of Mary and the no of Pilate, whether you're curious, critical, or committed. So let's examine this famous no of Pilate's and see how understanding the no's that we say to Jesus, if we can have honesty about that, how that might equip us and prepare us for the future. And let me be clear, this is a judgment-free zone. I approach Pontius Pilate with a deep personal identification with his weaknesses. Yet, Christians are the ultimate realists. And to quote the inimitable Gloria Steinem, the truth will set us free, but first it will tick you off. Now, frankly, that's not the exact wording of the quote, but I figured I haven't been here long enough yet. And if you have the passage from Matthew 27 uh, open either on your phone or in your Bible, you may find that helpful. Let's first remind ourselves of the historical contours of this record. Our writer Matthew uh, calls Pilate a governor, but actually he was a Roman prefect. And in the Roman system, prefects were usually uh, middle managers who owned uh, a little bit of land, Lake of Bays and the Kawarthas. And they were assigned small pieces of territory uh, that needed close watching. Pilate's HQ was in the coastal city of uh, Caesarea, right on the edge of the Mediterranean. Nice life if you can get it. But whenever uh, the Jewish people had a large gathering in Jerusalem, he would travel there to make sure that a lid was kept on any trouble. Because that was the one thing that Pilate was paid to do. Just keep it under control, Pilate. It's Passover season, so he's in Jerusalem. Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, are in the temple precincts and Jesus and his disciples have just arrived. All the players are in place, and the drama begins to unfold. Now, the record is pretty straightforward about the events that happened on that Friday morning. Pilate asks some routine questions. What is the charge against this man? And then he turns his attention to the bound and bloodied Jesus standing before him. Verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? A question which meant one thing to the religious leaders. He's claiming to be our Messiah and quite another thing to the political authorities. Uh, insurrection is about to happen. And Jesus's deliberately ambiguous answer, you say so, 
leads to the question recorded by the writer John that gives Pilate his place in history and probably makes him a hero to Kellyanne Conway. What is truth? Was this a wistful yearning after life-changing truth? Was he joining in a first-century version of a cancel culture mob, or was he just tired and fed up? We don't know. But we do know this. When he uttered those fateful words, what is truth? He was standing closer to the truth than he ever would ever again. And yet, he said, no, no. Now, if you look at all four of the historical accounts of this pivotal interaction, it's pretty clear that Pilate knows Jesus is innocent of the charges. But when the religious authorities played their trump card, if you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar, your boss, Pilate crumbles. A man will do many things to protect his status, his privilege, his job, and his marriage. And in the end, self-interest won the day. Pilate said no to Jesus because he wasn't willing to say no to himself. Now, I appreciate Antonio Cesare's 1871 portrayal of Ecce Homo, Behold the Man. Let's take a moment on our screens to look at it. You'll see we have an almost photographic view of a balcony, and we gaze from behind on the central figures, a scourged Jesus and a gesticulating pilot, whose face is not visible. It's almost as if he can't face us as we watch this man of power choke under pressure. The crowd just forms a far-off mass, and much of the detailed focus remains on the secondary figures, right? The guards, his secretary, and his disappointed wife. That man never listens to me. But our eye is drawn to the back of Pilate. His face is hidden, his left arm thrown out in exasperation, with Jesus standing so close to him. What do you want me to do? He shouts to the crowds. I'm not going to suffer for him. Do you want to? Now, if you've spent any time looking at the life of Jesus, you'll know that there were a lot of low points. While he was certainly popular with the lower classes, uh, the coastal Mediterranean elites wanted to have nothing to do with him. And in his greatest hour of need, his closest friends bailed. He died a humiliating death, the knee of the Roman Empire crushing the life out of him. And so for those of us who've decided that following this man is our best chance for hope and purpose in life, then we know, at least in theory, that there's no way to do this without some suffering, well, without sacrifice. And here is where we crash into the reality of our daily lives, how facing our nose to Jesus can actually free us for the future. Now, if you live a financially comfortable life here in Toronto, you own your condo, 
or at least uh, the bank owns it. Uh, you're already planning your first foreign trip for when we're able to travel again. And a year of COVID hasn't left your kids uh, totally feral. Um, you still have the pain of broken relationships. That man never listens to me or you've been ghosted. You still got mental health struggles and that nagging question. Is this all there is? And there are plenty of people in this city who have all those struggles and are not financially stable. Life is hard and it's particularly hard right now because COVID is a thief. Uh, it's a thief who's stolen loved ones, a thief who's stolen uh, time and rest, a thief who's stolen the rhythms of our family and our friends. And in the midst of the just general hardness of life, even if it's still a comfortable life, I'm not sure I want to take on uh, any more suffering or a life of more sacrifice. Even, even, even if you were able to convince me uh, that it's still the surest road uh, to hope, purpose, and ultimately the path to joy. I think that's actually a pretty tough sell right now. And so often we say, no, no. What are those no's, what do they look like? Well, in the midst of the pressures of marriage and motherhood and work, I know that I've said no to Jesus because I didn't want to say no to myself. And viewers, this is not false humility because I can also name the quiet ways in which I've played quarterback uh, to the hope of Jesus blossoming in someone's life. But I have also been a stumbling block. No's to Jesus can take public forms, you know, from the new atheists blogging about how the fall of some uh, celebrity pastor or uh, the devastation that's unfolding in Yemen right now, how, how those things uh, discount Christian claims. To that quiet moment when someone asked me at a cocktail party to explain Christianity and I quickly changed the topic because I wanted to enjoy myself, Manhattan in hand. Pilots know was dramatic. It's gone down in history and art, and yet God used it to bring completion to God's plan for the salvation of the world. So no's certainly have their place. But Pilate's renunciation, it was dramatic, but it was also hesitant. It was ordinary. And frankly, it was politically savvy. All four gospels tell us that when he was confronted by Jesus, Pilate hesitated. He was an ordinary man who found himself in extraordinary circumstances. And in my experience, our no's are similar. They're quieter, they're subtler, they're domesticated. When Hannah Arendt wrote in her book about the trial of the notorious uh, Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann, Eichmann in Jerusalem, her subtitle was The Banality of Evil. He was not particularly devious or glamorous, an ordinary man, banal. Pilate didn't want to riot in Jerusalem that day because of his career and his wife was on his case. Tony Blair mused, Pilate commands our moral attention not because he was a bad man, but because he was so nearly a good man. 
that vast, dusty landscape between affirmation and renunciation, that's the place in which you and I live our ordinary daily lives. If you're spiritually searching this morning, then maybe you haven't said no to Jesus, or maybe your no is wrapped up in some hesitancy about exploring the claims he made about himself and his claims about us. Because to start with, it sounds like a lot of work. And what if the claims are actually true? Or if you're already learning how to follow Jesus, then our no's, well, they take a lot of predictable forms. From not meeting Jesus on a regular basis in scripture and prayer, uh, not prioritizing uh, the spiritual nurture of our children, uh, and also to the daily financial decisions we make that put ourselves and our own needs before those of the poor or our environment. But as I said at the beginning, this is a judgment-free zone because I can't cast stones at anyone. However, we mustn't put our heads in the sand because acknowledging the daily ways in which we say no after it's ticked us off, that honesty is what can set us free. You see, at the heart of the Christian hope, the hope that we are walking towards this Lent is a man, a man who knows every single thing about us and yet still adores us. There are parts of our lives that are hidden from even those that we are closest to. And the idea that there's someone in this world who knows everything about us, it's just a delusion. And it's why truth serum is only used in the movies by the bad guys. We don't want anyone to know exactly what we're thinking at all times. There's only one person who knows that and who doesn't turn his face away. It's the great testing moment in any friendship or marriage. Your ugly side slips out, you have a huge fight, and yet the relationship still holds. Jesus has seen all our ugly sides, and yet not only stays committed to us, he delights in us. Because nothing shocks him, because he's seen it all, that's how we know it's actually love that we can count on when the chips are down. That honesty about our nose and transparency about our failures, that's what can enable us uh, to build our futures with hope. Our deepest relationship and even our careers are built on the assumption that the full truth about us will never come out. And so deep down, there's that nagging anxiety and insecurity that colors all our decisions. It, it shapes our habits. But, but if we are growing in trust that Jesus is the one person who doesn't turn away in disgust or, or disappointment, has been to hell and back for us, and has our best interests at heart, then it's a heck of a lot easier to say, Okay, COVID, you may be a thief, but you don't own the future. Knowing that our sins and failures, and even our uh, successes and accomplishments, knowing that they don't define us ultimately, 
that can strengthen us to take prayerful risks and to sacrifice for others as we move forward. In a few moments, Karen is going to lead us through an opportunity to confess, to be transparent and open. And at the end of the service, I get to remind you of God's love and blessing for you. While confession may tick us off, the love and blessing can set us free. Pilate said no. Today, if you're curious, keep asking questions, keep searching. The truth is out there. And if you've already said yes, then friends, be encouraged that even in the midst of our daily no's, they're ordinary. Jesus still wants to partner with us in our places of work and in our homes. Jesus still wants to partner with us in the midst of our hard and yet comfortable lives. Jesus still wants to partner with us in the transformation of this city and of the world. He still invites us on the adventure. Thanks be to God. Amen.